Let's get our Bibles out. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. So we're taking a break from our study through 2 Corinthians. And so every so often, a couple times during the year, we do something a little bit different and talk about some things that the Lord would have us to talk about. It's our normal practice to just preach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 2 as we're in the second week of this series we entitled B. We've been talking in 2 Corinthians about how Paul has been uh, revealing to us the importance of, of being before doing and that the, the Christian life, the essence of life in Christ is, is first being. And last week, Pastor Matt uh, gave us a great way to sort of peer into this conversation as we looked at the text of Mary and Martha and we saw how Mary was in the presence of God. You know, it's been a big theme through 2 Corinthians in the section that we've been in. So God sort of has led us to this uh, little break to sort of just spend a few weeks talking about this issue of being. And um, again, I want to say a couple things about uh, not just next week, but also the following couple weeks of this month. This is, this is a big month for us. We have a lot of great things going on. These next few uh, Sundays are going to be really uh, amazing times. Next Sunday is going to be a, an opportunity that you do not want to miss, okay? Uh, I'm not going to give you uh, all the details because, you know, that's just how I am. But I'm going to tell you this, that next Sunday uh, is going to be one of those opportunities for you to realize how, what a tremendous blessing it is to be a part of this fellowship. See, this, the thing about this church is there's so many things go on here. Sometimes people say, you know, I just, I, I hear about this and then I heard about that. I mean, you know, how can I know all the things that are going on? I said, you can't. So give that up. That ship sailed a long time ago. I, I wouldn't be able to teach you God's Word. I'd just stand up here every Sunday and tell you about all the things that are going on, all the things that are happening amongst this body. But there's so many amazing things that are happening, and sometimes we just need to stop and draw attention to some of the things that God uh, is doing among us and has been doing in a, a tremendous, amazing way. And we're going to look at that next Sunday and so you definitely, definitely want to be here. And we're also then, we're going to uh, eat a meal after service, go out. It'll be our last Saturate Sunday. So uh, we'll think about maybe uh, in, when we get through the holidays or something in 23, we'll have a big celebration for uh, the 10,000 plus homes that have been reached with the gospel through the Saturate Initiative. That's very exciting. And also, one other thing. Uh, the Women's Resource Center is something that I've, has definitely been on my heart lately, and I've been praying for them in light of the Roe v. Wade overturning and uh, all the things that are going on with regards to uh, abortions. And they are having a—we support them. They're, it's an amazing ministry. But they're having a garage sale this coming weekend. So this week you can go drop stuff off. So if you've got some good stuff that they could sell to help fund that ministry because the— uh, the amount of people that have to utilize their services is about to skyrocket. And so we want to make sure that they're 
prepared for that. And that's a crucial ministry on our uh, Gulf Coast. So we want to be a part of the Women's Resource Center. So uh, bring some stuff there for them to be able to sell. All right. So as a fellowship, we have a mission. We have a mission statement as a church. You know, wherever you see uh, Michael Memorial, it will say underneath that, making disciples at home, across the street, and around the world. That in our DNA, from the very beginning, we wanted to make sure that the central command of Christ was central to who we are as a fellowship. That there's lots of things that we exist to accomplish and to do. But if we don't do the main thing, then we're basically not doing anything, in my opinion. So Jesus leaves us with this command, go therefore and make disciples, make them of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so in this command, we find this commission, this, this, I mean, just mountaintop statement by Jesus that gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It explains everything about uh, who we are as Christians and why we exist and what is our, our function. And it, it, it sort of guides me and my understanding of what my function is and how to equip you for the work of ministry. It, it guides you and how you are to uh, invest your time, your energy, your resources, and so on and so forth. And it drives everything that we do. Now, my question is, well, why is it that so many people in church today don't make disciples? It's probably the, the single most uh, prevalent conversation amongst the pastors here. We talk about this more than any other thing. We talk about D groups. We talk about discipleship. We talk about making disciples. We talk about multiplication. We talk about this, the constant challenges that come with that. All of the, the, the ways in which uh, we're being effective and all the ways in which we're not being as effective as we feel like we should be or we could be. And on and on it goes. We agonize over it constantly, always talking about it because it's the, it's the central core of who we are. But, but yet you look around and you say, well, why are there so few people making disciples? What is it that, how, how could that be? How could the, you know, think of any other realm of life. You know, here recently, uh, uh, it's football season, and so that's good because that means that the weather's nice and that, you know, we're, we're coming into the most exciting time of year to me. But I'm always excited when it's football season. But here's the thing. We, we see uh, universities and, and uh, franchises that, that shell out tens of millions of dollars, give it away to coaches that they fired because they didn't do the central thing. I mean, you can't coach if you don't win. If you don't win, you're out because the point of the whole thing is to win, right? But yet somehow in the church... You cannot win and just keep on drawing a check 
so to speak. And then nobody seems to care. It's a, it's a very strange thing. So why don't people, there's so many people in church today, why don't they make disciples? Well, top five answers are on the board. Let's see what they are. No, maybe it's, I don't have time. Man, I would love to, I wish the coach of Nebraska at his press conference when he got canned would have said, well, we would have won, but I just didn't have time. $16 million later, but I just didn't have time. What about this? Uh, I don't make disciples because I believe somebody else is going to do it. Imagine, why don't you go to work tomorrow and tell your boss, well, I would have done that, but I thought somebody else was going to do it. See how that works for you. Maybe the reason people don't make disciples is because they're afraid. Fear. Maybe it's because they feel underqualified. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe number one on the list is because they're not really disciples in the first place. See, if you think about it, well, well why don't you make disciples? Well, no, no one ever taught me how. I hear that. Well, no one ever taught me how. Sometimes you say, well, no one ever discipled me. Well, okay. And, and two, there is, a, there is a, a, a degree to which that's true, but, but you would be in the process. You can't say that if you're not being discipled, right? In other words, whose responsibility is it for you to be discipled? Someone, it's you. So if you haven't been discipled, then it's your responsibility to get that done, right? So you can't really say, well, I don't really know how, because then I started thinking about all the things that I don't know how to do, but I just figured them out. You know why? Because they were important. I thought about how when Kayla was born, me and Lisa didn't have a clue how to raise a child. I didn't know how to change a diaper. I didn't know how to mix a bottle. I didn't know how to do anything. But you know what I did? I figured it out. You know why? Because I had to. You know why? Because it was important. You know what you do? Anything that matters to you, you figure it out. You don't stand around and go, well, I don't know. Just staring at the baby like, well, I don't know. What are we going to? You'd figure it out. Me and Lisa were talking about this last night. It's like, all these things, in other words, I'm not a doctor, but when my kids get hurt, you know what I do? I figure it out because I have to. So when you say, well, you know, no one ever taught me how, the truth of the matter is, is it's not important to you. Or that wouldn't be the case. Right? Yeah. That's the truth. I mean, we have an amazing ability to figure things out when, when we have to. Furthermore, think about this. If everything God has done centered around this mission, and if God has invested everything in this mission, which he has, his son, we just sang about the blood, like it's not just some blood. It is his literal blood that was literally shed for this literal mission. Wouldn't you think that whatever we need to accomplish this mission would be built into the gospel? 
In other words, wouldn't you think that? In other words, are any of us going to stand before God and say, well, the reason I didn't make disciples was because I didn't have what I needed? You're not going to say that. So, I mean, what happened here? See, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, did he fail? Did he fail? Somehow? So, so what does this look like? See, this is, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I mean this. I mean, it's a good thing when I get to sit over there and listen to somebody else preach on a Sunday. But it's a bad thing because now I have an extra week to think about what I'm going to blast you with in two weeks. See, so you know what I'm saying? It's just like it builds up. I get double the time to meditate on this. So, so I started just really thinking. Asking questions. And I had an epiphany. I was thinking about, now, what does it look like to practically live as a follower of Jesus? Opened up the New Testament and just started reading all through the New New Testament. I, I asked God, just give me new, fresh eyes. I want to see with new, fresh eyes. And I just want to try to answer this question. Not looking, I'm not looking for... What did Jesus do? That's not what I'm trying to answer. How did he do it? How? Not what did he do. How did he do it? Not according to what I think or you think or any book thinks. What does the Bible say? And here's the epiphany. You can get your listening guides out. Jesus lived his life from the Father's love. This is how he did it. Most of the time when we have a, a disciple-making conversation, we're talking about what to do, what happened in the Bible and what to do, and those are very good, beneficial conversations to have. But we're talking about being, not doing And how did Jesus do what he did? Well, he did it from the Father's love. See, Jesus didn't live trying to earn the Father's love. He didn't live trying to keep the Father's love. He lived from the Father's love. Now, I want to I explore that. I want to explain that to you. I want you to see that. So here's the first part of it. The first half of this is that the Father's love secured Jesus. As I started reading through the New Testament, this is what was jumping out at me page after page after page. How the Father's love secured Jesus and how important this is for us. All right, so for example, a lot of Scripture coming here. John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now watch what Jesus does. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That is an amazing statement because here's what it says. It's saying that Jesus' security, his 
identity, his affirmation, his confidence in who he is did not come from people. It did not come from how people responded to him or reacted to him. See, he did not need that. He rejected that. Because the Father's love secured him. And then when you start thinking about this, you realize, Pastor Matt touched on this last week, that unless you're secure in the Father's love, what are you going to do? You'll need to find love somewhere else. So what Jesus, what the Bible starts right off the bat in the gospel teaching us about Jesus is how secure he was in his identity. And I want you to see how that identity is tied to this issue of the Father's love. So look, you, you keep moving into the gospel. You start getting like to Matthew chapter 3. Now Jesus is 30 years old. He inaugurates his earthly ministry. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't healed a sick person. He hasn't forgiven a sin. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't risen from the dead. He hasn't made a single disciple. He hasn't done any of these things, right? And what happens? At his baptism, the Bible says a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my loved son in whom I am well pleased. What has he done? Nothing. In other words, the father is declaring his love for the son who has yet to do anything. So clearly that love is not tied to his accomplishments, right? He doesn't love him because of what he's done. He's not earning. He's not trying to keep. He's clearly something else is going on. See, who Jesus was was not determined by what he was about to do. It was determined by who loved him. Now, later on, we see these instances where Jesus is uh, in facing opposition from the religious leaders, from all sorts of, you know, challenges that, that he's facing, right? And so, John chapter 5, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal to God. So they're trying to kill Jesus, don't, don't just graze past this. I mean, try to um, put yourself in a position. Imagine that there's a group of people that are in power that are trying to kill you. Now, instead of using his position as the son of God to sort of negate this uh, attempted murder or to set the record straight or to solve this thing or to validate himself, how does he communicate to people trying to kill him, who he is. Notice what he says. He says, for the father loves the son. You see, that's a strange thing. In other words, why would he say that? They're trying to kill him because he's saying that he is God. And his response to them is, well, let me tell you who I am. I'm loved by the father. You see, you see how it secures him, how his identity is, is wrapped up in this? His strength is found in the security of knowing who loves him. Then you, you, you fast forward. You start getting towards the end of his ministry. Jesus goes up on a mountain. I talked about this two weeks ago. He's getting ready to uh, descend from the mountain of transfiguration. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. That's sort of the timetable that's before him. Okay, and then what happens? Just before, at the end of the, 
the, the transfiguration. Here's what happens. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my, again, loved, beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then God adds, listen to him. In other words, the validation that you should hear him, the reason you should listen to him, why should we listen to him? Because I love him, the father says. Huh. So all of this, all the way scripture is sort of wrapping all of this together for us to see Jesus finding his security in the love of the father. And so that the father's love, it's secured Jesus. But then there's another side to this coin. Because I kept reading scripture and I started seeing that the father's love also sent Jesus. The Father's love sent Jesus. See, Jesus gets here and he's facing this this humanly impossible mission. I mean, just think about all the things that are ahead for Jesus. I mean, so much so that, that the Son of God is saying, God, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, please let that happen. Which tells me and you that if it would have been me and you trying to accomplish this, you might as well forget it in the first millisecond. It would have been over. We couldn't have done any of it. That's how hard it is. But then there's more to this story. It's not just the, that how difficult all that is. But then what, what propelled Jesus or compelled Jesus to leave the comfort of heaven and to come and assume this responsibility? I mean, that's pretty shocking. You're going to give it all up. Just like the passage that Pastor Matt read this morning. Just love. Now, think about the most, the most familiar passage about the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, if you think about this, Jesus is not just telling us in John 3.16, he's not just telling us that there is a mission. He is telling us that there is a mission. But also he's telling us He's explaining what motivates the mission. What, why is all of this even true? Why did all of this even happen? Because God so loved that love was what was propelling the mission from the Father. Love is what was propelling the Son to accomplish the mission, that behind all of it is love. So it's interesting to think about. It wasn't the frustration of God that led him to reconcile people to himself. It could have been. God could have sent his son out of frustration for our ignorance. God could have sent his son for, for, for out of angst, out of concern, out of all sorts of things. But what motivated all of it to happen was the love of God. What drives all of the gospel, all of redemption is love. And so when you start thinking about this, you start thinking about how, well, we may possess all sorts of things about God. 
we may profess all sorts of things about God. Like we have all, these, all this head knowledge, all these things that we, we, we possess. We have all these things that we profess with our mouth. But our lives will fall flat in the face of the ultimate purpose for which we exist without the revelation, the supernatural revelation of the love of God. You see, this is what the Bible teaches us. People don't change the world. People possessed by the love of God change the world. That's what happens. That's how this whole thing is orchestrated. See, to be a disciple is not just to to think the right things. It's not just to to do the right things. Neither of those two things in and of themselves make you a disciple. Jesus could have... He could have asked the Father for anything. For anything. He prayed continuously to the Father. And he could have asked the Father for anything. And... Interestingly enough, time and time again, we find out in the Gospels, I kept reading over and over how Jesus would rise early in the morning and go off by himself to be alone with the Father. But guess what? No record of their conversation. No idea what Jesus was talking to God about. I don't know what he was asking the Father for. I don't know what he was, I don't know what he was saying until John chapter 17. When we have a record of what Jesus is talking to the Father about. And so here's Jesus. He could ask the Father for anything. He's, now think about this. He, he is secure in his identity of who he is. So, so that in that confidence, he's able to face this impossible mission. And all of this is, is wrapped up in the Father's love for him. That's what the Bible's teaching us. And so he can ask God for anything, but just before he gives his life for the mission, what is the one thing he wants, the one thing that he asked the Father to give the people who will carry on this work that he's about to give his life for? In John chapter 17, he says, and I have declared to them your name. And will declare it. That the love which you, with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that interesting? That the love that you loved me with. The love that you loved me with that made me so secure in who I was. That, that compelled me to leave heaven and come to earth to take on this impossible mission. To do all these things. That love that did that for me, I'm asking you to give that love to them. Because what I needed to do this, they'll need to do this. If I needed it, they definitely are going to need it. In other words, if Jesus couldn't do what he did without the Father's love, then clearly me and you absolutely positively have zero chance of accomplishing anything apart from a supernatural revelation of the Father's love. 
So then I kept going. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's go into the epistles. Let's, let's, let's keep following this thread. So we come to Ephesians chapter 3. You look in your Bible. Now the Apostle Paul, just like in the first and second uh, letter to the Corinthians. So here, just like that, he's writing to a secular a church in a secular city, in a secular setting, a pluralistic society that's worshiping all sorts of crazy things. People, the, the people in the church at Ephesus were just like you and me, struggling with how to live faithfully to Jesus in a complicated world, just like we are today. And I want you to look at what Paul is about to pray for them. See, a Evidently, Paul had got this. He knew everything that I just told you about Jesus being secure and Jesus being sent by the Father's love. And so Paul then prays for these Ephesian believers. And look at what he says. Look at verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, here we go, here's what I'm asking for, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, I want to just pause for a second. Now, what, what I'm talking about, what, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, I'm praying for something that they're not going to get through a sermon. Because he's already been, been, been preaching to the people at Ephesus. It's not three simple steps. You don't just do this and this and this and everything's to come. Don't, it's not hoops that you jump through. Or else it would have already been accomplished. Now, notice, he, he's praying that God would grant this to him according to the riches of his glory. That they'd be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So what Paul's saying is, what I want for you only comes... When the very presence of God himself inhabits your being and begins to live inside of you. You see that? You, you see what he's saying? Through his spirit in the inner man. You can't get more being than that. Now look at verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in, what is it? Yeah, you should circle that. Love. Grounded in love. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height of what? To know the, you should circle that, love of Christ which passes knowledge. So it's beyond head knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
that all of this ties back into this issue of love. The fullness of God is found how? To being, being grounded in his love. To know the love of Christ. This supernatural revelation of how much God loves you. Now, what I'm saying here is that this is a strange conversation because Paul's not talking to unbelievers. In other words, shouldn't you know this already? Shouldn't everybody in the church already know this? How could this be new information? But apparently it is. Apparently it's one thing to say, yes, I know, God loves me. And it's another thing to have the presence of the knowledge of God's love in your life. See, the grand vision of God for your life is more than head knowledge. It's more than a transfer of information. What we need is a supernatural opening up or pouring out of the heart of God. And when that happens, see, that's what Jesus asked the Father for us. That's what Paul is asking the Father to give the church at Ephesus over and over. I kept seeing this over and over and over. This grand vision of God for our lives. That by the cross of Jesus, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in the context of community, that we would experience the fullness of the love of God because only then will we be secure enough to embrace the mission that God's placed before us and then change the world around us. See, see, I'm, remember how we got here. I kept asking the question, God, show me something here. How is it that people in the church aren't making disciples? Like, how is it that we could miss this? How are there people missing the the main thing? Like doing all these other things, but if you don't do this, what's the point of any of it? I started seeing Scripture reveal to me that There's a lot of people that know in their head that God loves them. And you'll never make disciples based on that. Because in order to make disciples, you have to be secure. It's going to take security. You're going to have to be confident in who you are. Because if you think about, think about... So many reasons why people, church people who have all this head knowledge don't make disciples. They don't know who they are. The whole book of 1 Corinthians taught us that. You got a whole church in Corinth and they don't have any idea who they are. See, they don't know who they are, so they start acting like who they were. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So all of a sudden you come, you make a profession of faith, you, you know, pray a prayer or sign a card or do something or whatever you do and and yet but you you don't know who you are you just start going through this 
the, this, the motions of things. And here's the thing. If you don't know who you are, well, you're never going to step off into this. The only way to get to the mission is you got to be secure in your identity. Because here's why. If you're not secure in your identity, then guess what? I'm wrapped up in what do you think? And see, making disciples is not easy. And if I care what you think, in other words, this is the thing. Then you start thinking of how all these churches got so derailed. Here's how. Because they're led by pastors who have an identity crisis and care what everybody thinks. See, as soon as a shepherd starts worrying about what the sheep think, everybody's getting eaten by a wolf. If as soon as I start telling you what you want to hear, we're all going down like the Titanic. But see, it, you, in order to not do that, you got to be secure in the Father's love. And then, then you can embrace that you're sent. You start thinking, it makes so much sense. No wonder people reject this notion of being sent. So he's praying that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Keep reading. Look at verse 20. Look at what happens. When, when this happens, when you're secure in the love of God and you're sent by the love of God, then we get to now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How is glory in the church going to go from generation to generation? Can I ask that question? There's only one way that's going to happen. Making disciples. Someone has to pass it from one generation to the next, right? That's the only way it's going to happen. Notice, so this, the, the great promise of things that are exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think come in the context of the prayer that he's praying that we would know the fullness of God's love. Man, look at that. You say, well, I can't change the world. You're right, you can't. But if you're possessed by the, by the wealth and the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of the love of God, you can. That's what the Bible's teaching us. So, so here's the, the realization. When we talk about a, a true disciple, according to what the Scripture says, a disciple doesn't live to earn the Father's love, does not Cannot. So all the people living to earn the Father's love, they're not disciples. That's unbiblical. A disciple does not live to keep the Father's love. See, you've got all these people. Listen, if, you're, if your motivation for doing things for God is to, so that God will keep loving you, now don't even act like that ain't in this room because you know you're lying. Why do you do the things you do? Because you want God to keep loving you. Hmm. That's, not, that's, that's an unbiblical idea of discipleship right there. To keep God loving you? No. A disciple lives from the Father's love. That's the only way you can live as a disciple. That's the only way. 
See, remember Jesus said, Jesus didn't say, I just want to remind you of something. Jesus did not say, I will make you fishers of men. He did not say that. What did he say? Follow me. There's a qualification. See, if you're not a fisher of men, I mean, do I have to explain this all out here or is it painfully obvious? You're not following. See, God never fails. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So if you don't fish for men, what do you, well then, man, I'm not saying it. The Bible's saying it. But if you think I'm saying it, I don't care. Just get that out, right? It's fine. It's good. No problem. Follow me. Follow me. From the Father's love. I just started thinking about all of life. I started thinking, Lord, help our children to know the outrageous nature of the love of God. We, we want to raise our kids so that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt how crazy God loves them. And we want them to experience God because if they experience God's love in their heart in a supernatural way, then look at what happens. It, 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 all of these things flow from that. But see, if they, if they memorize a thousand verses and if they know all the church songs and if they have the attendance award and if they have all, but they don't know the outrageous degree that God loves them, they're not going to do anything. That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible's teaching us here. And if we don't know that we're loved, we're just going to search for it in other places. We're going to be wrapped up in what everybody else thinks. See, that's what, well, that's what we got to realize. Christianity is not a bunch of people who just gather together and enjoy being with each other. It's, it's about a purpose. It's about a mission. It's about everything that we do should be driving us towards this thing that we're called to accomplish. Remember, again, just over and over and over. In John chapter 20, Jesus, he sees the disciples for the first time after the resurrection. For the very first time. And what is that conversation? The Bible says in the same day when evening came, being the first day of the week... When the doors were shut, there they are in the upper room, scared to death. The disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. because, uh, And then Jesus comes and stands in the midst of them. And what does he say? Hey, hope you've been okay. Hey, look, I told you. No, what does he say? Peace be with you. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. It's the mission. He's like, now I did all this so you can go be sent. That's the whole point. We're not motivated by fear or, or ambition or reward or acceptance or anything else. Look, then you get to well, 2 Corinthians 5, which we haven't even got to yet. And it just jumps off the page. For the love of Christ compels us. What compels us? The love of Christ. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Amazing. You see what just happened there? Look, 
What motivates us? The love of Christ. So God's love ignites the reality that he died to save us. See, if we know that one died for all, right? You see that? Security. Identity. In other words, the fact that God died for you is how you know that he loves you, right? That's exactly what this passage is talking about. But then what does it go on to say? Therefore, or because you're, you know how much he loves you, he says, now from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Again, we no longer see people for who they are, but for who they can become in Christ. You know what that is? That's the mission. The mission is to start seeing people for what they can be in Christ. That's the whole mission. That's why, we, that's why we share the gospel. That's why we make disciples. Because we see what people can be in Christ. Not If we based everything on who they are, we'd never do anything. But he says, well, we don't see with the flesh anymore. We don't see with our, our fleshly eyes. We've been liberated to be in a community of people that see the God potential in me and you and everyone else. What an amazing thing. All because of what God's done on the cross. Now, our mistakes are no longer held against us. Our past no longer defines us. So see, we see out of our personal experience, we see other people. Therefore, we embrace this mission. But if, if, I, don't, if I don't see that, if I don't experience that, then I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to share that with other people. How many times have we said, I can't give somebody something I don't have? Yeah. See, so here's, here's what all of this shows us this morning. The love of the Father secures us in who we are. You, you're not going anywhere until you understand the love the Father has for you. Because without the security of that, you're, you're never going to accomplish anything that God's called you to. It's way too, it's, it's impossible. It's too scary. It's too, you can't. And then secondly, the love of the Father sends us into the things we were made for. That's what we were made for. See, we have to stop seeing mission as something we do. And as the people of God, we need to see mission as who we are. That's who we are. We don't do the mission. We are the mission. You are the mission. That's what we are. So why don't we do this? Why don't we stand? And let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And let's take a few moments and contemplate the magnitude of the love that God has for us. And let's ask. I want to ask as Jesus asked the Father. I want to ask as, as Paul asked the Father. That God would pour out a supernatural revelation of his love. 
into your hearts so that we would find such security in our identity and that we would then embrace the sentness with which God has. And we'd stop making excuses. And we wouldn't go out in human effort. No. He didn't do it from his inner strength or his inner resolve or his inner discipline. Christ did it all from the Father's love. That's the whole point of this. That's the whole point. Ask God, show me, God, how much you love me. Let's pray.